everybody, I am still here. If you can believe it, I am still here, uncensored, coming at you live from the studio in Cincinnati. Your host, Alf Bergen. They couldn't cancel me with, uh, with some pirated music. They couldn't touch me talking about bird scooters and abortion. But you know what, today, I've got some nuclear takes for you. Absolutely nuclear takes. I, I had to run them by some folks, actually, before I, I decided that maybe this will be the one that gets me thrown off of uh, the podcast waves. But, but hey, I'm happy you're back. I'm happy you're joining me here today. Um, and I hope you're ready for the weekend. You know, that's, that's the big thing. This is an end-of-the-week podcast, an unusual one. But, you know, like I, like I, I think I hinted at, uh, in the previous episode, we got some things to talk about here, and and uh, you know do a little book review, and then and then actually gonna gonna backtrack on some of the not backtrack, but talk a little more uh, about the draft and in some other uh, areas that I found interesting, you know, doing and, and reading some more uh, about what happened there. But before we even uh, get started into the into the nuclear stuff, um, you know, twice a week. I think we, uh, I think we gotta get back to this, um, you know. So, so write in, uh, give me some content. I'll be perfectly honest with you guys. I haven't checked the email uh, in months. So, I, I'm <laughs> the next episode I do. You know, look if we got some feedback from from January, the January episode. You know, I, I will <laughs> we'll get into that. And it's almost like a time capsule. Let's just keep talking about the same things over and over. But before we do that, some advertising, everybody. Um, Coca-Cola is the uh, sponsor for this segment. Tapo Chico, uh, the cancer-causing white claw um, that is made with sewer-filtered water, um, given a hint of Pepto-Bismol and some malt liquor, uh, and packaged to you as a uh, low-calorie, totally safe alternative to uh, to beer. So that, that's who this segment's brought to you by. Now, it's what we have to talk about here today. Now. What if I told you that Joe Paterno was innocent? What if I told you that Jerry Sandusky wasn't the monster he was made out to be? And what if the Penn State football program really didn't cover anything bad up? That's what we're talking about today. Now, if you were like me, in what I heard in the media at the time, and in everything since then, it was one of the most clear-cut cases of child abuse, systemic child abuse, and a cover-up you'll ever see. That Joe Paterno knew, actively covered up for his buddy Jerry Sandusky, and then the brass, the, the athletic director and president of the university, knew about child abuse that was occurring, and they themselves actively covered it up. Now, in fact, you could go even one step further, and if you followed this, you would know that, of course, Jerry Sandusky is in prison for the rest of his life. Um, in addition, though, the athletic director and president were found guilty and, and sentenced to prison. I believe the president's um, jail sentence was overturned on appeal, as it should have been, um, but then I think reinstated very recently. Like, these, these things are still ongoing. They still want to put these guys behind bars. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, when you dig into the actual case, 
I'm not sure you see the, the clear signs, um, or, or at least as cut and dry as you think it is. So what got me thinking about this, I was, you know, a little, little book report here. I was reading a, a Gladwell book. And, and if you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell or know who he is, if you've read one of his books, you've read them all, roughly. Um, what he does, and he's probably, I'm guessing, you know, I'll Google this right now. Who is the most successful English language writer in, in America outside of Stephen King? And maybe the guy that wrote The Notebook um, and J.K. Rowling. I would say Malcolm Gladwell's in top five. Let's see. Best-selling English-speaking authors Gladwell. Let's see where this guy is in the list here. Um, well... I don't know. Everyone's the number one best-selling author. I don't know. In, in any case, I think this guy sells millions of books a year. And the reason why, and I think I've read every single one of his, his published books, or at least seven of them. And the reason why is because my mother's a flight attendant. And, uh, you know, as such, she spends the majority of her life that isn't at home in an airport. Which, airports are, are places where, like, reality doesn't exist in the true form. Like, it's, it's a very different and alternate sense of reality being in an airport. And you can even get kind of coaxed into believing that one of those, like, you know, convenience stores that sells the 10 best-selling books in the country and then some weird magazines and then stuffed animals branded in whatever city you're in, um, they sell, like, whatever the newest Gladwell book is. And so my mom at one point found out that I, I liked one of his books, which I think was, I don't know, Tipping Point, which might have been his, one of his first. And it was a good one. Um, and I, like never since she's like Patrick likes Gladwell. So every year I get like a Gladwell book for Christmas and, and the year previous, she actually got me the same one twice. So I made her take it back to whatever Seattle, um, convenience store she got it from in the airport. Um, but in any case, so I've, I've read them all. And like I said, if you've read one of them, you've read them all. And essentially what he does in the book is he's kind of got a premise at, at the beginning and then he'll tell you a bunch of vignettes within it and he'll give you half of the information, which is why I hate like true crime documentaries because it's the same thing where it's like, I'm going to present to you a, a very small piece of evidence and naturally, logically, your mind's going to go one way, but wait, I'm going to introduce more evidence that's going to make you go the other way and then in the other way. And then, and then finally you get to the truth and it's like, well, if you just fucking said what you knew at the beginning to be true, we... we we could have saved 10 hours of this nonsense. In any case, that's essentially what Malcolm Gladwell does in his books. He creates like true crime narrative um, with a bunch of vignettes and gives you straw man arguments and stories and anecdotes about things from other things and at the end ties them together. And the book that what I'm talking about with Penn State comes from is uh, his latest book called Talking to Strangers. And Essentially, the, the book's premise is we make snap judgments about people without knowing who they are. And our mind, our, our ability to detect deceit or truthfulness or lies or, or anything is it's really bad, particularly when someone from another culture or way of expressing truth um, differs from you. So, you know, if I'm talking to someone from my community, I'm pretty good at picking up 
truths, things that are true and things that are not true. What I would not be good at with strangers and kind of split second decision making is if somebody from a different culture, like let's say someone from China or, you know, the Middle East or even, you know, quite honestly, somebody from like a poor urban black neighborhood, my rush judgments of them would would not be great because it, it's just it wasn't my culture in any way. In any case, he uses that to kind of make the argument. It's the Sandra Bland case. If, if anyone remembers that, it was a woman that got pulled over in Texas and it was like a kind of a bullshit traffic stop. And it was a, a black lady and a white cop and they get into an altercation, drags her out the car. She's in jail. Now, rather than it being this traffic stop, it turns into a bunch of trumped up charges. She had a history of, of mental illness and she ended up killing herself in prison. And, you know, it was a big deal. And it was pre-George Floyd stuff too. So it was kind of along that, <laughs> that path and timeline of escalating police encounters, you know, with black men, black women against white police officers, things like that. Um, and his point is essentially that because we are so bad at, you know, the police officer essentially took the way that Bland was behaving as a threatening and just didn't understand what she was doing. And likewise, the, you know, Bland didn't really understand what the cop was doing or saying or, or behaving. And it turned into conflict and it spirals out of control. And there's a number of vignettes within it that kind of express this. And, and one of the things, one of the vignettes in there was um, the Penn State case and the rush to judgment and kind of the juxtaposing views. And if you think about from, you know, kind of the way this is structured, we'll give you one, one end of the story where it's like clear cut, clear as day. Anyone could have made that decision and no one, there, there's no ambiguity. It is what it is, black and white. And then I'll do something that's a little bit gray. And so the black and white case in this example was the Larry Nasser case with sexual abuse. And, you know, it, it was so egregious and for so many years. And there's so many documented cases of abuse and, and literally, literally hundreds, if not thousands of girls repeating more or less the same story um, in graphic detail with you know, the power structure behind them and, and active cover-ups and, and so much of that. It, it's, yeah, it makes the Catholic Church look like they were, you know, the model organization for protecting children. Um, that's how bad the Nasser case was. But then on the other hand, you've got the Penn State case. And at first, you think it's just like the, the Larry Nasser thing where it's cut and dry and, you know, anyone, anyone could have seen this abuse and, and reported it and known that what was happening was wrong. But when you dig into the Penn State case, and I've, you know, I've, I read this book, I read this bit probably a month ago, um, and then have still kind of at times gone back to it and thought about it and researched and gone down the, you know, basically experienced the internet, for lack of a better word. Um, and I'll tell you what, guys, I, I, I think it's very possible, and I'll tell you why. I think it's very possible that Jerry Sandusky was a very weird dude and some very weird shit happened. But that assumption that I had, at least me anyway, at the beginning of Mike McQueary, the former assistant coach walking in on Jerry Sandusky, sodomizing a young boy in the shower, seeing it. And then this was multiplied over multiple boys over decades. 
I don't think that happens. And I don't think anything like that happens. That being said, weird shit happens. Absolutely. I'm not going to sit here and say that no abuse occurred. But the level to which it did and the reaction to it, it's interesting. So let me, let me get into the, the, the whys here. And let me do one other, one other staking comment here before I get canceled on this one. So I, I'm, child abuse is wrong, obviously, and all of that. And that's, I'm not debating that. But I, I'm going to make the argument that there is like a spectrum of the showers you know, that you expect to have there versus the, you know, some weird uncle shit that happens. And it's like that crossed the line. It's inappropriate. It should never happen again. This person should be put behind bars or at the very least be banned from being with children versus kind of the other end of that spectrum I was just saying. So that's, that's kind of the place that we're coming from here is that I learned the things that I learned was not, it, it, it wasn't what the media purported it to be, Right. That, that's where we're going with here. So let me go and let me read a little bit, a couple of things uh, that I think are important to this case. So, you know, again, you'd think I would, I would bookmark this here, uh, but of course it didn't. So as I uh, pen through here. All right. <clears throat> Uh, where, where do I begin with this? So, so first of all, and here's where we think that there's like, you know, it's a cut and dry case. It's because Sandusky himself, weird guy. Here, here's the first bit that I'll, I'll, I'll go through is the Bob Costas interview, which everyone remembers. And if anyone knows anything about like criminal defense, you never, if the guy's, if the guy's guilty or, or even look, looks guilty or has the possibility that anyone could sense a bit of guilt. You never put him on the stand, nor do you let him go and do uh, a media interview without you there present to kind of help him through. So it was, it was bananas that they allowed him to do this interview. But, but here's, here's what you know, that interview did. And I think it put a lot of people kind of over the edge of being like, of course this guy did it. And this is where this book kind of says, like, you can't always trust your judgment for weird people that don't behave the way you do. Um, but they're just, they're just awkward and weird. So here's, here's the Costas interview. Costas, you say you're not a pedophile, Sandusky, right? Costas, but you're a man who, by his own admission, has showered with young boys. Highly inappropriate. Multiple reports of you getting into bed with young boys who stayed at your house in a room in the basement. How do you account for these things? And if you're not a pedophile, then what are you? Sandusky, well, I'm a person that has taken a strong interest. I'm a very passionate person in terms of trying to make a difference in the lives of some young people. I worked very hard to connect with them. Costas interrupts. But isn't that what you're just describing? It's the classic MO of many pedophiles, Sandusky. Well, you might think that, I, I don't know. Sandusky laughs nervously, launches into a long defensive explanation, then Costas says, are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Sandusky says, am I sexually attracted to underage boys? A pause, Costas, yes. Another pause, and Sandusky says, well, sexually attracted, you know, I, I, young people, I, I love to be around them, I, I, but no, no, not sexually attracted to young boys. Right? So let's stop there and just say, yeah, there were people that allowed this guy to be around young boys. So that's, that's a problem. And I think that's where you start to blame some of the administration being like, if anyone talked to this guy, you could tell should not be around children. But even though he's a weird dude, 
Uh, I, you know, it's hard to say that anything super weird actually occurred. So the, the next big thing in this case, and this is where the uh, Michael McQuarrie, he was the um, assistant coach that kind of brought this light, whose accusations were um, basically the, the, the smoking gun, if you will. The only thing they had was McQuarrie's testimony. They had nothing else. The prosecution had nothing but this guy's story. And what's interesting is it came to light years later. I think it was like a decade after he purports to have seen something is when the accusations came to light. And even it was a, years after he saw these things, the story that he told changed three times. Even in the weeks after he purported to see it. So let me, um, let me read this portion here. Uh, and so he, essentially what happens to summarize, McQuarrie claims to have seen something in the showers, uh, doesn't do anything to stop it, right? And he just goes, goes home, uh, goes and tells his dad he might have seen something. So uh, they get a family friend who's a medical doctor and he, and he tells the medical doctor who has a duty to report uh, what he saw and this is what he said. This is Dranoff under oath describing what McQuarrie told him. Quote, he said that he heard sounds, sexual sounds, and I asked him what he meant. And he just said, well, you know, sounds, sexual sounds. Well, he didn't know exactly what he was talking about. He didn't become any more graphic or detailed than that. And as I pressed him, it was obvious that he didn't have anything more he was going to say about it at the time. I asked him what he saw. He said he didn't see anything. But again, he was shaken and nervous. And this is Gladwell's right now. Dranoff is a physician. He has a duty to report child abuse if he becomes aware of it. Second question. So why doesn't Dranoff go to the authorities when he hears McQuarrie's story? He was asked about this during the trial. Defense, now you specifically pressed him that night and you wanted to know what specifically he had seen, but my understanding is he didn't tell you what he had seen, correct? Dranoff, that's correct. The defense, all right, he told, but after you left that meeting with him, the impression was that he heard sexual sounds, is that correct? Dranoff says, what he interpreted as sexual sounds. Let me repeat that, what he interpreted as sexual sounds. The defense and your your plan that you presented to him or proposed to him was that he should tell his boss Joe Paterno. Dranoff, that's correct. The defense, you did not tell him to report to Child and Youth Services. That's correct. Correct. You didn't tell him that he should report to the police. Correct. The defense, you didn't tell him that you should report to campus security. Correct. You didn't think that it was appropriate for you to report it based on hearsay. That's correct. And indeed, the reason that you did not tell Oh, I'm sorry. And indeed, the reason that you did not tell Mike McQuarrie to report to Child Needs Services or the police is because you didn't think that what Mike McQuarrie reported to you was inappropriate enough for that kind of report. Is that correct? That's correct. Dranoff listens to McQuarrie's story in person on the night it happened, and he isn't convinced. Okay? Now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read for the, this, this next little bit here. And, and this, this is about McQuarrie's story too. Things get even more complicated. McQuarrie originally said that he saw Sandusky in the showers Friday, March 1st, 2002. It was spring break. He remembered the campus being deserted and he said that he went to see Paterno the following day, Saturday, March 2nd. But when investigators went back through the university emails, they discovered that McQuarrie was confused. The date of his meeting with Paterno was actually a year earlier, Saturday, February 10th, 2001 which would suggest that the shower incident happened the evening before Friday, uh, February 9th. 
But this doesn't make any sense. McQuarrie remembers the campus being deserted the night he saw Sandusky in the showers. But on the Friday evening in February, Penn State campus was anything but deserted. Penn State's hockey team was playing West Virginia at the Greenberg Pavilion next door in a game that started at 9.15 p.m. There would have been crowds of people on the sidewalk filling into the arena, filing into the arena. And after a five-minute walk away, the Bryce Jordan Center, the popular Canadian rock band, uh, Bare Naked Ladies, was playing. On that particular evening, that corner of Penn State campus was a madhouse. Now, John Ziegler, a journalist who has written extensively about the Penn State controversy, argues that the only plausible Friday night in that immediate time frame when campus would have been, would have been deserted is Friday, December 29th, 2000, during Christmas break. If Ziegler is right, and his arguments are persuasive, that leads to a third question. If McQuarrie witnessed a rape, why would he wait as long as five weeks from the end of December to the beginning of February to tell anyone in the university about it? I, I mean, you know, I, there's just, there's a lot going on there, right? And I don't know. And look, here's the, here's the other thing too. And when I would say like Sandusky was a, was a weird guy, um, you know, essentially what he would do, and he admitted to doing this and, and hundreds of, of people came forward and saying this was true. Like he would, he would shower with the kids. He, would, he was around with the kids and, and, you know, he had a boundary issue is what I think was happening here. And then when you go through and, and keep reading and, and digging into these things, you have to, at some level, look at the people that come forward with these, with these claims and these stories that held on to them for so long. And I'm prone to believe people that have something to lose um, when you come forward with something like this. And not only are just people that have everything to gain. And if you kind of go through victim by victim, supposed, well, victim by victim, you, you see that, you know, there's some unsavory, unsavory characters, folks that really wouldn't have the type of access that they do. And the star witnesses uh, that they have, their stories are inconsistent. So I... All of this to say that the star witness in the case, whose story everything is based off of, is, is so unbelievable. It's, it really is. And you might say that, well, McCreary lost his job and it, kind of, it changed his life, and it certainly did. But you also have to keep in mind the guy got a $10 million plus payout from Penn State. And if I'm not mistaken, Penn State also settled over uh, $60 million with, with all the other victims for, for things like this without any of these ever going to court. So, I mean, will we know the full story? Probably not, because, you know, when you get all these payoffs and, and all of these go to civil and not criminal court, um, it, it's hard to, you know, to really know the difference. I, I don't know. Am I totally off base here? Is, have I spent too much time on the internet? I don't know. Here's another little bit from, um, from uh, that writer, uh, John Ziegler. Now,
Well, and you know, here's the other thing, too, is, is the, the criminal defense uh, team that, that Sandusky had was just terrible, too. Like, they, they committed several acts of, of malpractice. One was the, was the Costas interview. And believe it or not, he ended up doing a second interview, which is even, even more incredible. Um, and then, apparently, during the trial, the other thing that they didn't do, I think the single most underrated fact was, was McQuarrie's story. And the defense made, like, a minor issue of that. Like, if I were a defense attorney, I, I, would, I would have the entire time just hammered, hammered, hammered McQuarrie of being like, you're, you're the only person that has ever claimed to have seen anything. And the fact is, you didn't see anything. You heard something. You interpreted something. And, and there are some plausible explanations for what that might have been. So here's here's some more uh, dialogue from from the trial, and I'll I'll just keep doing this because I think the dialogue is important. I I mean reading reading the files uh, from this case are, are fascinating. So you know McQuarrie goes to see his boss Joe Paterno on Saturday. Alarmed, Paterno sits down with Curley and Schultz the next day, who are the administrators at Penn State. Uh, they immediately call the university council. Uh, and then they call him McQuarrie. So you can only imagine what Curly and Schutz are thinking. You know, if this really was a rape, a rape why didn't you break it up, McQuarrie? Um, and, and so that's kind of the, the conversation that they're having here. So, Courtney, I, I asked at some point uh, along the way whether this horseplay involving Jerry and young boy, whether there was anything sexual in nature. He indicated to me that there was not to his knowledge. My vision, at least when it was being described to me and in talking with Mr. Schultz, was that it was, you know, a young boy in the showers, a lot of water in the shower area, and, you know, just running and sliding on the floor. And the prosecution asks, are you sure he didn't say slapping sounds or anything sexual in nature at all? Courtney, I'm quite positive that he never said to me anything slapping or anything sexual in nature that was reported going on in the shower. Courtney said that he thought it was about it and considered it worst case scenario. This was, after all, a man and a boy in a shower after hours. But then he thought of what he knew of Jerry Sandusky as someone that was goofed around and was around the second mile kids all the time in public. Um, and he defaulted that impression. The prosecution, did you tell Graham Spanier that it was horseplay? Schultz, yeah. When did you tell him that? Well, the first, the first report that we got that passed on to us is just horsing around Jerry Sandusky. Uh, and he was seeing the shower horse around with the kid. And I think the word was uh, repeated to President Spanier and that, you know, he was just horsing around. So... You know, the way that it was told, right, this, this idea that there was a cover-up, it's just, it doesn't stand up to the light of day because McQuarrie didn't see anything and he didn't report anything. So how can you hold the administrators at Penn State accountable for things that they had no control over? Yes, were inappropriate and weird things happening at Penn State. Absolutely. No question about that. But to equate this scandal at Penn State to anything that occurred... Uh, with the Catholic Church or anything that occurred with Larry Nasser, it, it's simply not in the same level. And so the whole point of this diatribe here is to just say, I learned some interesting shit a couple weeks ago, and I think they're right. I think this was a railroad job, and Joe Paterno's statue should be re-erected, and Penn State should get all of those wins back that they forfeited for some reason, like the NCAA took away wins because of this. It, it, was, it was a media circus. The media took something and ran with it. And the last thing that I'll say here, and this goes back to the media thing. Hold on. You know what? I just remembered one more. All right. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Where else is this fucking thing? 
Um, well, you know, I'm not gonna find it. You know, this is this is the problem where you don't prepare for this stuff. You just kind of do it off the cuff. Um, but basically, right? Years later, McQuarrie did kind of interview and, and said, you know, what happens here? And he was horrified at the way the prosecution twisted his words. The way that this thing whole, unfolded was that it became a, a sensational, a slam dunk case. And it was a kind of a gray area. And I think it is very much a gray area. The prosecution took it, made it black and white as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. And, and McQuarrie took a lot of um, umbrage. With that, because the way that, that he explained it, obviously, was, you know, he didn't, he, he might have seen something, might have heard something, didn't see anything, surely. Um, but it was taken away out of proportion. Words were put in his mouth. They twisted his words around to make it seem worse than it was. There was this huge cover up. And guess who got paid? All the lawyers, the prosecutor gets a book deal. Everyone made millions. Lots of people made millions. Um, and a handful of people lost themselves. I don't know. Interesting. Just stay woke. So I'm saying is stay woke. Stay woke, everybody. And one of the other victims in that case, too, I'm just remembering this, too, from some of my other research. He was one of the like most ardent defenders of Sandusky, like went over to his house. Uh, Sandusky was like, like godfather to his, his, his own children and, you know, they had family dinners there all the time. Um, and then he claimed to be uh, a victim. But it made no sense. It, like, the timelines were all... It, it, it never made any sense. And what the prosecution thought was a star witness, they couldn't put on the stand. Because the guy, you know, was very clearly not telling the truth. You can look and see that Sandusky's own son claims that he was abused. Um, and all of his siblings disagree with that. Like, they're, if they're unscrupulous people, though. They have nothing to lose by coming forward with this information and everything to gain. And you know what they did? You know, anyone that came forward ended up getting a settlement from Penn State for the most part. So I don't know. I don't know. Something to think about. Um, if, <laughs> and none of this is disinformation, by the way. This is all true. Everything I've said is true. Uh, there is some speculation, of course, that I've put in. But I, I've, read, I've read to you um, the you know, actual trial logs. And, you know, Gladwell is one of the most... I think respected uh, writers, uh, certainly nonfiction writers in the English-speaking world. So, I mean, hey, if that guy's not convinced, I don't know about, I don't know about you. Um, so there's that. So the last thing here, uh, tell me what you think about the Penn State thing, if I'm fucking out of line. But what a nuclear take, by the way. Like, imagine going to a bar and overhearing um, that you thought that Jerry Sandusky was railroaded. I think that's... I think that one would, would draw some interest. Um, all right, so the other thing, just one last bit that I want to talk about. I mentioned last week, or last podcast, how good the Ravens draft was, and I think it was really good um, for the most part. I think they got some, you know, some of the best players on the board. Now, I read some other things, notably, notably from The Athletic and, and also Football Outsiders, that, that made me kind of reevaluate, you know, are the Ravens overthinking perhaps – what they were trying to do. So if you look at their draft, you know, the first round pick was uh, Kyle Hamilton and second round or, you know, second pick still in the first round, uh, Linderbaum, who was great, um, or projected to be great. They got a punter in the fourth round, which is crazy. Um, they got two tight ends, 
and they traded away their only receiver that could open up the top of the field. So some executives were kind of opining on this, and I think I agree with them. Like on the surface, oh, they got the highest rated center and the highest rated safety on the board. Good for them. And then not to mention they're doing some galaxy brain shit where they're drafting a punter and two tight ends relatively high. What are they doing over there in, in, in Baltimore? Not to mention they had so many picks. But one of the things that I'm coming, the more that I dive into like draft football and the more that I'm understanding and learning about, you know, the weights that players can play at and, you know, the arms that some of these guys have to have and the shape of their bodies even that might indicate that just the way the way that somebody's built, they either can't play the position well or they're more of an injury risk. And one of the interesting things with Kyle Hamilton that I didn't realize is that he is like a 6'4 safety, and that's unheard of. Safeties aren't that tall. He's a weird shape. He's slow. He's not fast. He's not quick to the ball. He's physically a specimen, and maybe as a, you know, a wide receiver would be an interesting body. But it was interesting to read that a bunch of NFL executives, the reason why he fell so far was because they didn't believe that his shape, his body, his height would be a good strong safety. And, and the other argument, too, is that strong safety is, is not, especially in the new NFL, where you don't necessarily need strong safeties on running backs all the time, especially because, you know, they're not, running backs aren't running through the middle. You are more likely to need someone that's able to motion out wide, match up with uh, a fast running back or match up, even with a, uh, a decent tight end, although, you know, it's strong safety. That's, that's usually not necessary. But in the new NFL, people are moving a different way, and, and the Ravens uh, zigged where others zagged. Now, the other thing with Linderbaum, too, is he was highly rated, but he doesn't, he doesn't have the arms. And he himself, there hasn't been a, a center with his size profile That was ever that could ever justify a first round pick. Now you know there's decent centers, and obviously it's an important position, but he's not a specimen by any means. He seems to have good feet. He seems to be able to move well. He seems to be able to pull well. He seems to be able to get out of blocks well. But it's a different animal in the NFL, and, and I think there's a reason why Linderbaum fell as he did too. And uh, and a Jabo that they got, he fell to them in, in the second round as their third pick. And, you know, maybe they got value there on the surface of it, but, you know, he might not play next year. And why waste a second-round pick on someone that's not going to play next year? In the second round, you only get somebody for four years. They don't have a fifth-round option. So um, you're going to have to get give this guy a new contract after year three. And, and part of the, the draw of having a guy at that quality that high up is that you can lock him in. A guy starts immediately when you draft somebody that high. They're supposed to start immediately, contribute, and then you get – Maybe a free couple of years of value before you have to start thinking about shipping him off or, or re-signing him. So I think I, you know, when I was looking, it scared me a lot. Um, but I'm, I'm being encouraged now looking at the draft and thinking that maybe the Ravens outthought themselves. Maybe they're trying to outsmart themselves. And some of that might backfire, which I, I think it might. Um, I, some other draft reaction that I have too, I, I didn't... You know, I thought the the Bears had the worst draft uh, out of anybody. They they didn't give any help 
to Justin Fields whatsoever, which I, I think it's, <laughs> I think is, is coaching malpractice to have somebody who's potentially as good as Justin Fields and give him no help. Now, the, the Bears didn't have a pick until the second round, and I don't think they had a third-round pick, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they only picked players in the defense. I mean, one after another. Defensive player, defensive line. Um, and gave no help to Fields. Unfortunately, Fields is going to get killed. He's got a bad offensive line. He's got no weapons at wide receiver. Um, it's it's going to be a long season for him. Where... I'm coming around a little more too is, is the idea that with a new GM and a new coach, Justin Fields isn't their guy um, and they're not in a win now mode. So they're going to, they're going to build a defense up from the ground up. So the bears are going to be bad for like three more years, which is really sad for them in that franchise that they're throwing in. The t- they're not trying to get good uh, anytime soon. They're building for the future. I would imagine they're still in full tank mode for at least another year or two. I mean, like they're using the Cleveland four-year plan essentially to just stockpile draft picks in the future. You know, they're still paying for their sins though to get uh, Justin Fields. They're still paying for that, obviously, with with the draft picks that they gave up last year to pick him. And it's just it's a cruel irony that they gave up all of that uh, for Fields. And you know, coaches out, the GM's out. Fields doesn't have a bright future there, so. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, and, and I'm trying to think if any, anybody else caught my eyes, a, a revision to my initial reaction. Um, no, I, I think those are the top two. Yeah, no, nothing else to add there. All right, well, well hey, we're, we're going to get 40 minutes out of this. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, let, let's see if this one gets me canceled. Talking about uh, maybe Jerry Sandusky wasn't so bad after all. Framing <laughs> the website, in case you're interested in researching that a little bit more, framingpaterno.com uh, is an interesting one. So um, check that one out and uh, let me know what you think if I'm totally off base. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll get back to it. A lot of football, a lot of football this week. And we'll get back to it next week. Take care, everybody.